Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Welcome back to another episode of Explain to Shane. Today, I have a special guest, Michelle Kairos, who is a lawyer and a writer based in San Francisco. She writes about transportation policy, the impact of shared mobility on cities, and she's also the host of her own podcast, Smarter Cars, about the autonomous vehicles, micromobility, and the future of transportation. She's also the author of a forthcoming book known as the New Mobility Handbook about the future of multimodal transportation in cities that is due out later this year. And Michelle, we'll get to that towards the end of our podcast. So welcome today to Explain to Shane. Thanks so much for having me, Shane. So Michelle came to my attention. I'm a huge user of the Twitter. I love the Twitter sphere. And I noticed that she posted an article that she had written about why shared micromobility will survive the post-pandemic. And the thing that really caught my eye was you pointed out that it's no riskier than using a grocery cart. And I loved it. I loved the visual you had there. And it really kind of put all this in perspective for me. So let's talk first of all about what's going on with scooters and bikes as we're all kind of dealing with this post-pandemic and the, the fear that some city mayors and city council have had about the continued use of scooters and bikes. So can you just kind of talk about the social risk and what we should or shouldn't be concerned about? Yeah, you know, when I think about transportation and how it's going to come back as we all get back to work, I think about it in two buckets. One is the risk of germs in the air, and the other is sort of germs on surfaces. And, you know, when you get on a subway or on a bus, you kind of have both of those risks, right? You have the risks of breathing air in a confined space that somebody next to you might have the coronavirus, and then you also are touching surfaces around you. So what occurred to me about micromobility as we you know, look forward to getting back to work and, and getting back to transportation is that it really only has a surface risk. You know, you're out there in the fresh air, and all you're doing is holding on to a handle or with a bike, you know, sitting on a seat, and that's really a risk that we've come to learn to manage in part because, you know, even in the middle of this pandemic, we're still going to the grocery store. And as I was going to the grocery store and getting out my disinfectant wipes and, you know, wiping everything down and wearing my gloves, I thought, you know, it's really not that different to ride a scooter. And so I really feel it's a risk that we have learned to manage during the pandemic and that we feel more comfortable managing going forward. Whereas if something potentially has contamination in the air, there's no way to really know, you know, if you've avoided a risk or whether you're being subject to a risk, you can't really clean the air the way you can get that satisfaction of wiping down a, you know, a handle. I believe there's a recent MIT study, they've been doing daily things out on the COVID-19, where they said that mass transportation was a major part of the problem in spreading COVID-19, especially in the East Coast, like New York City and Boston, where it's a regular way that people get to work. So I think that the idea that using the idea of micro, you know, micro transportation, and if you have that as an option, you've got wipes or you've got disinfectant, it seems like this is definitely a safer way to go. 
You mentioned in your piece there is the possibility of creating nanoseptic handlebars and brake levers. I'm not familiar with those. Can you just give us a, a couple minutes on that or a second on that? Yeah, you know, companies are trying to figure out you know, how can we give riders more comfort that in fact the handlebars are not infected? And so one option, I think it was the company Wheels, they have sort of a seated scooter product in a shared environment. And they announced that they were going to implement these nanoseptic handlebars with a material that's actually designed to kill germs, sort of a self-cleaning surface powered by light with these, you know, nano crystals that can really kind of clean on its own. And I think that's a really interesting idea. And I think we'll see more companies go down this road of trying to come up with solutions to make people feel more comfortable and I think someone else pointed out on Twitter that actually just leaving scooters out in the sunlight, that the the UV from sunlight actually also helps to deter germs. And then, you know, there are other things scooter companies can do, whether it's giving you the wipes right there on your device or selling you a set of clip-on handle grips that you just snap on each time you want to ride and then take them with you. I think there are a number of innovations that scooter companies can work with to give people some extra comfort going forward. The healing power of vitamin D, also known as the sun. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that that's still a thing. That's great to know because I think that that shows that there's definitely, this is not something that should be the concern that I've seen some localities have around the scooters is, you know, that's definitely a manageable issue. Let's go to the larger issue around micromobility and multimodal transportation. You point out in some of your other articles that scooters are really cost-effective and economical choice. They're affordable. You know, a car is from, you know, especially 20, 30-somethings, they don't think the car is worth the money because the average car right now costs about $37,000 by the time you pay for financing, insurance, gas, maintenance, parking. So if you are have this as an opportunity as, you know, kind of the last mile or sometimes the first mile, it seems like a really cost-effective way of getting around. Yeah. And when you look at how people travel, especially in cities, so many trips that are taken today in cars are very short. So we use the car today for every trip. You know, it might be one mile to get, you know, a loaf of bread or 50 miles. We use the car for every trip, even when it's really not the right tool for the job. What the micromobility movement is trying to accomplish is to say, hey guys, let's look at each trip we take and ask yourself, what's the most efficient mode? And, you know, coincidentally, micromobility with scooters and bikes is also very fun and interesting and you have fresh air and it, it is environmentally friendly and all of those things really appeal, especially to the younger demographic. But when you look at it as part of an overall transportation system, you look at these traffic jams in cities and you say, why do I want to get in a car and sit there bumper to bumper, you know, to go a mile or two miles when I could take a scooter or a bike and it's more fun, it's more interesting, I can engage with the environment, I can stop quickly and get a coffee all those things make it a really attractive option and it can really reduce traffic in cities. You can get rid of a lot of those short trips. 
as you pointed out, that 40% of the car trips in the United States are less than two miles is pretty amazing. And that the other statistic that grabbed me, and it's just a change in your mindset about how we use assets, is that personal cars are used less than 5% of the time and they remain parked 95% of the time, which not only means that you have this asset, a car, which isn't being very efficiently used, but the real estate of where the car is parked and the whole idea of parking lots. Once you start to notice that, it almost becomes annoying. <laughs> like, wow, that is such not a good use of downtown space. It's so true. And, you know, when you look at a city, and I think we're seeing this today during the pandemic, because cars are are staying home. And suddenly you look around and you say, wow, this is what my city looks like without cars. We give so much real estate in cities to parking, to lanes of traffic, to street parking, to garage parking. There's just so much space that we've allocated to cars. And we really start to think about how can we reallocate that space to modes that can move more people and are more environmentally friendly. I was looking at to try to find empirical evidence this morning, and it looks like the, you know, from what I'm looking at, these studies, a lot of them are done by the companies, but so they're somewhat self serving, but they're also look like they're pretty accurate. They show a presence of micromobility solutions taking cars off the road at a pretty significant rate. In San Francisco, according to Lime, 65% of scooter use was replacing automobile usage. Bird reports that 30% of ride trips are replacing cars for the studies they've done. Bird also estimated that with the full growth and adoption of scooters, they think that they can reduce all car trips as much as 40%. And what I like about that is, again, this is an urban mode of transportation, but it's pretty realistic. I know I live in Washington, D.C. I live downtown and I have the ability to pretty much never take my car when I'm in a downtown mode. I might when I'm going out to the suburbs or most of the time going to an airport. But it's, it's a pretty exciting, and one of the things that we have discussed is the need for the change in urban landscape to accommodate both bikes and scooters. I know we're talking about scooters, but bikes as well, that once you, you know, take that into account, you have the ability to take about 2,000 cars off the road. That was a, a Portland study because of the availability of scooters. So let's talk about some of these regulatory challenges that come to mind on what needs to be done, how cities can, counties can handle the revamping of their regulatory transportation programs to make these micro mobility programs sustainable. What do we need to be doing? Yeah, well, when you look at shared micro mobility programs in cities, especially kick scooters, what we saw was an effort by cities to put in place some regulatory programs to control some of the initial clutter that we saw when scooters were first introduced. And what I think has happened over time is that cities have really put in a lot of regulations and a lot of fees in an effort to control use of kick scooters. And in fact, they've gone overboard. They've sort of gone too far in the regulatory scheme of things. And it's imposed so many costs that micromobility companies can't really operate profitably in most cities. And so you have to ask yourself, is micromobility good for cities? Do we want to have shared scooter systems? And if we do, and if cities believe they're good for all the reasons we've been discussing, and they can help with mode shift to get people out of cars, they can provide the first and last mile to transit. If scooters can be helpful to cities in that way, shouldn't cities take a step back and say, how are we regulating these? How are we imposing operational costs on these scooter programs that are totally unnecessary? And what can we do now to make it more economical to operate these systems in cities? And so we saw just this week in Portland, 
they came out with the scooter company Spin in a partnership where Portland has agreed to reduce the fees that it charges per scooter, per ride in Portland. And as a result, Spin is able to reduce the price that it charges consumers because the cost of the fees has been reduced by the city. So that's a really interesting model that I think we're going to see more of where cities look at the fees they're charging and say, wait a sec, we hardly charge any regulatory fees on cars. And yet we have this mode that's environmentally friendly, has great road geometry, super helpful as part of a multimodal system. And we're charging, you know, in order of magnitude more in fees on scooters than we do on cars. Like, does that really make sense? So fees are one way that cities can really revamp their programs and make it more economical to run shared scooter programs. And then some of the other things that I think would be really helpful for scooter companies involve reducing a lot of the regulations that really aren't necessary. So we see restrictions on riders like speed restrictions, curfews where you can't ride a scooter at night or geofenced areas where the scooter dies if you ride it down by the beach, things of that nature. And when you look at how we regulate cars, I mean, we post a speed limit, let's say it's 25 miles an hour in a school zone, but we don't force car companies to put a regulator in the car that automatically reduces the car speed to 25 miles an hour when you enter that school zone. We trust riders to obey the rules of the road. And if they don't, they face ticketing and other enforcement. So it seems like there's a overzealous approach to regulating how riders are using scooters that has imposed a lot of costs on the industry that are unnecessary. Yeah, it's it's an interesting mix. I my younger sister lives in Miami and we were walking one morning and all of a sudden you hit this point where you used to see a bunch of scooters and it's because they've geofenced them off of the actual beaches. Yes. <laughs> it's like you hit it, you go, Oh, well, I guess you can walk on the beach and then you then you can go back and pick up a scooter. There's a good chance there's gonna be one available because they can't go on the beach. And then on the speed limits, I know that in Arlington, Virginia, they have a speed limit just for scooters of 10 miles per hour while they allow bicycles to maintain the speed of well above 30 miles per hour. I thought that was interesting. And also the Smithsonian Magazine did a piece about, you know, just kind of the fear of innovation in transportation. And they, this whole lead in the first paragraph makes you think that they're talking about scooters and they're talking about bicycles back in the 1800s and how people just <laughs> thought they would never take off. Kind of puts an interesting perspective on, you know, the scooter debate. You mentioned road geometry. The National League of Cities did a ability to access test and they have a really good, it's about a 40 page paper that's online, where they talk about the bias of future investments and initiative against the populations that are most in need of better mobility, especially in urban areas. And so are we seeing more cities look at how many people per square foot you can you know, utilize a micromobility device like a scooter or a bike versus a car as a given mode of transportation? Yeah, I think you know, road geometry is a really interesting concept. And it says, when we look at our streets, historically, we've asked questions like how many cars, you know, per minute, what is the throughput of cars or vehicles on our streets? And instead, we should be looking at how many people we're moving. So the way you can move a lot of people 
is to either have one big vehicle like a bus with 50 people on it and each person only takes up, you know, two square feet or to have a really small vehicle like a scooter or bike that rides in a bike lane. You can move a lot of people that way. So the modes that we see on city streets that have really efficient road geometry are big buses and small, you know, micro vehicles. I think when you put the multimodal transportation system together, you have to say not everybody's going to ride the bus, right? Not everybody's going to take one particular mode. And similarly, there are plenty of people who don't want to ride a scooter. And so you have to give people lots of different options, but options that are better than one person driving a 4,000-pound you know, SUV to drive one mile. And the amount of space that takes up on the street and the amount of traffic that gets clogged by everybody driving in their own car. So by offering these other modes like micromobility and public transit and putting them together in a multimodal system, cities can really encourage a better flow of traffic. Yeah, I think that the combination of the point-to-point transportation, you know, that it's still private, even though I, I like taking the metro. I live next to three bus stops and I've, I just, I'm not conditioned to take the bus. But that's also because it's on a fixed schedule. That's one thing I tell myself. There's probably other reasons. But, you know, the whole idea that you, you can grab it and go and it takes you where you want to go and you're, you're, you're on your own, I think, has a, a big appeal. There's also, uh, this goes back to the Portland study I was reading about how Portland believes that 34% of the riders reported that they use a scooter in, as a replacement for both a car or a taxi. But that not only means less congestion on the roads of Portland and fewer cars that are taking up the space, but it also has the public benefit of being better for our environment. And I think that's an interesting point to bring into this discussion as well. Yeah, it seems like cities should be encouraging any mode that is not a private car that, you know, is smaller, lighter, takes up less space, is better for the environment, you know, all of that make micromobility a really great replacement for short car trips. And it seems like such a no-brainer in terms of the impact on the environment. And you're right that riding a bus, you know, is a great option and cities have been promoting public transit for decades, but people aren't riding the bus. Yeah, and you get a deficit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's a great idea, but it hasn't, it hasn't worked. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself, as you say, like, why is that? And I think it's people like cars because they, they're point to point. They get you right where you need to go. They're not on a fixed schedule and you have your own private, comfortable space. And until micromobility came along, there really wasn't any mode of transportation that met those three fundamental needs that cars were serving. And so it was really hard to advocate for something other than the convenience of a car. And now with micromobility, we finally have another mode that has better road geometry, better environmental impact, and, you know, kind of meets these, these three aspects of cars that people like. Michelle, tell us about the book, because you obviously have spent a lot of time working in this area. It's called the New Mobility Handbook. What are we going to learn? Yeah, well, what I was thinking about and wanted to write about the future of transportation is how we can create a multimodal system in cities 
that uses all three modes. It, it says, let's continue to use cars, but change how we use them to make them more effective and to only use them for the trips where they're really necessary. And then let's make room on our streets for micromobility and really build the infrastructure in cities to support safe riding of bikes and scooters. And then let's make public transit great, right? We, we have to make public transit faster, more reliable for it to be a great option for people in cities. So what I'm doing in the new mobility handbook is just laying out how we can harness these new technologies like electric bikes and scooters, rideshare, all the, the cell phone technologies that have come to be in the last couple of decades, how we can harness these new technologies in order to make transportation work better in our cities. And the way to do that is not to just go totally in, in the technology direction, but also to marry that with our old school urbanist policies about the best ways that cities can manage traffic. So for decades, we've had city planners saying that we should do congestion mode pricing, we should price fairly the impact that cars are having on cities. And now what we're seeing is people really try to bring together some of those classic urbanist policies and put them together with our new technologies we have available today and say, let's put it all together and come up with a multimodal system that works better for everyone. Well, that sounds like a fascinating read. When, when do you expect to have it out so we'll be ready to get a copy? I'm shooting for later this year. I'll let you know when it's out. But I think it's a great time to be focused on transportation. I think it's one of our biggest issues in cities. And I think it's time that we got together as technologists and as urbanists and put together a, a new plan for, for new mobility in cities that can really work. Well, I need to get you together with my friend who does a lot of work on urban asset recycling, because I think the two of you together could be a, a definite force. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for your time today. And I also want to encourage my listeners to listen to Michelle's podcast on Smarter Cars. Where can they find you, Michelle? We are on Apple Podcasts and all the podcast listening apps. And you can find our publication also on medium.com called Smarter Cars that has links there. And you can also find my articles on micromobility and other transportation issues on medium.com. Great. Well, Michelle, thank you for your time today. And I appreciate you being on Explain to Shane. Thanks for having me.